So we were going to be out of a project manager. We were, we were either going to we we're going to have to hire a new project manager. So that's one of the key things that happened. The second key thing that happened was we found out that we were going to be having our first baby. <laughs> so we were in the unique position of being able to make a decision right now on whether or not we wanted to hire someone new and keep down the same path we were going on, or if we wanted to maybe chart a new path. And the reason why we chose to chart a new path was because we wanted to have a better utilization of our time. Welcome to Grid Talk, a podcast about real estate entrepreneurs, visionaries, and the stories behind the legacies they're creating. I'm your host, Rob Chavez, and today it's my honor to bring my good friend, Scott McElhaney, on our podcast. We're going to be sharing Scott and Lisa's journey. And, you know, what I'm so excited about is that Scott and Lisa actually helped propel Kim and I on our own personal journey. They don't know that, but they were a massive influence in our life. And so, without further ado, my good friend, Scott McElhaney. Scott, man, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here, Rob. Appreciate you inviting me. Hey, man, I'm I'm excited to share your story, your journey with everybody that's part of GRID. And um, and I wanted to have you on here because, I mean, I've known you now 20 years, probably a little over 20 years, right? Yeah, probably 1998 was when we first met, I believe, around there, 1998, 1999, somewhere around there. It had to have been 98, yeah. So it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And, you know, you um, were one of the guys that inspired me to go into real estate full time. Uh, I obviously kind of read did the whole thing. I think like you did, like we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and yep. went through that and got our thinking a little bit different. And um, but you you took the leap early, right? Right after 9-11, 9-11 happened. And then you you. You know, you, we were business partners in this recruiting business and you took this leap and um, and then I've seen you and Lisa grow ever since. And I really have watched from a, from afar and admired what you guys have built. And um, and so I want to share that because your story is uh, an interesting story, this journey. And I'm going to walk everybody through the journey here in a little bit. But but Scott, why don't we start at the beginning? This is this is your this is your journey. Um how did you get started, right, in real estate? Let's kind of go back to that time, right? How did you get started and why did you get started? Well, like you mentioned, you and I, I think, both read Rich Dad, Poor Dad about the same time. And we were both fortunate in that that book came out in the late 90s. And it was just mm -hmm. super popular. Uh, we both read it. And it really resonated with me. You know, I, uh, you know looked at relatives and people older than me who had done the 40-hour-plus you know, a week grind for years and years. And I, I liked what Robert Kiyosaki said, and I just wanted to seek that different way and that different lifestyle that he was talking about and making money work for you. And I really liked real estate. Lisa and I, even before Rich Dad, uh, uh, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, were real estate junkies. We would go to the, we would go to our local bagel shop in Arlington, Virginia every Sunday get the Washington Post, sit down with a bagel and coffee and just peruse the uh, residential uh, for sale ads around the D.C. area. And then we would just go to open houses just for fun. And so we both loved real estate. And when Kiyosaki talked about uh, real estate being one of the tools you could use to build passive wealth, 
that really resonated with me. So I started seeking it out as a possibility uh, for me to get out of what he called the rat race. And I started uh, networking with investors in the DC area. And I was fortunate enough to stumble across this website that had a very active chat board at the time called Lease to Purchase. And it was Lease, the number two purchase.com. And they had a really active chat board. And I met this guy on the chat board out of Fredericksburg, Virginia, who was a school teacher and was doing a lot of lease to purchase deals. So I drove up to, to Fredericksburg uh, one evening after uh, work and met with this guy at McDonald's for coffee. And we, we hit it off and started talking. And the next thing I know, I'm doing deals with this guy while I'm still a recruiter. And essentially the deals that we're doing is this guy had so much business coming in that he was putting together these lease to purchase deals with the owners of the property and then putting a tenant in the property, uh, basically what they call sandwich lease. And then he was flipping the deal to me for a couple thousand bucks, just teeing them up for me. And I would take some of these over. He had plenty of, of business in his portfolio already, but he had so much that he was happy to, to make a, a, a fast nickel over a slow dime and just pass it on to me. Mm. When I look back at it, I had a tremendous amount of trust in this guy because I really didn't know him that well. <laughs> but we ended up, I don't even know how many deals it was. We ended up doing somewhere around 10 deals. And all of a sudden I had this portfolio of uh, lease to purchase deals in the Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania area. And I found myself getting off work and driving an hour to Fredericksburg, you know, quite often and but i but i really liked it i didn't have any kids at the time i wasn't married uh lisa and i were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time but it was fun but and i found myself enjoying it more than recruiting and like you mentioned when 9 11 happened i think that caused a lot of people to kind of reevaluate their lives at the time i was you know, 25 years old 26 years old Funny thinking about a, a 25 or 26 year old reevaluating their life after only, <laughs> after only five years in the world. Well, what people need to know is that we we were uh, a mature 25. I mean, we were grinding, making phone calls, calling oh, C yeah. CEOs, VPs of sales, sales managers. Like, it, like yeah. we were hardcore, man. Yeah, hardcore. yep, yeah, hardcore. So, I mean, uh, once 9-11 happened, I started really thinking about going into real estate full time. And I thought about what I wanted to do. Um, I liked the lease to purchase deals, but they were, you know, they were, as you know, with lease to purchase deals, they have a very low success rate of the, of the leasey actually purchasing the property. And some of these deals that I bought wholesale from this gentleman, they didn't all go well. I mean, it was it was quite a learning experience. I found myself in court multiple times with with tenants who had defaulted on on leases. I had tenants leave overnight and leave stuff everywhere. Uh, so it was, you know, it was trial by fire. And I really learned uh, not only the lease, the purchase business, but the landlord business fairly quickly. So I wanted to decide what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to drive back and forth to Fredericksburg, full, you know, um, if I was going to do this full time. So I made the decision that I wanted to flip houses. I wanted to buy houses, renovate them and fix them up. And uh, naively enough, I decided to do it in one of the most expensive counties in the country, and that's Arlington County. And then I chose the most expensive pocket in Arlington County, North Arlington. And so I quit my uh, I quit my job as a recruiter and I started full time as a real estate investor in February of 2002. Now, this is an interesting time 
in that I am just now newly engaged and I've taken out a loan to, to buy a ring for, for Lisa. And now I am a entrepreneur. Uh, with no cash coming in, <laughs> and we're getting we're getting married in September. So you do the timeline's pretty tight here. So I'm I'm full time now as a real estate investor, February of 2002, getting married uh, in September of that year, uh, with no in- income coming in. So luckily, you know things broke for me, and you know as our wedding was approaching, I I did have my first. Uh, my first flip that I was able to purchase that I was working on while we were, you know, getting married and getting ready to go on our honeymoon. But I still remember being on our honeymoon in Hawaii and us checking our credit cards to make sure we could get through the entire trip. Cause we were, you know, you talk about, boot, you talk about bootstrapping. We were doing some bootstrapping. <laughs> how, long, how long did it take you to get that first deal? Do you remember? You know, so we started in February 2002. I, I don't remember, really remember the timeline. It was, you know, we purchased two properties in, in this one specific neighborhood in Arlington called Halls Hill. One of them I actually moved into, which was a townhouse. Oh, and yeah. then, yeah, you remember that? Yeah, the contemporary yeah. townhouse, super cool townhouse. And as, I, as Lisa and I often did, once we, once we burrowed into one deal on a specific uh Submarket, we started trying to find other deals within that specific neighborhood. So the first deal that we we bought, where we were going to actually make you know cash money on flipping it versus moving into one, was in that same neighborhood. It was a it was literally a cinder block one story house with a basement, uh, and it was probably about twelve hundred square feet above above grade with the basement. And we hired a, you know, a local contractor and we basically gutted the inside, finished off the basement, waterproofed the basement, put it back on the market as quickly as we could. And, you know, within a couple months of, of our honeymoon, we had had that property sold and uh, we were out of the woods on our uh, credit card debt, which was nice. Do you remember how much you made on that one? You know, I, I think we made about $80,000 on that property. Okay. We bought that property from an old real estate family in Arlington, uh, the Pete family, uh, P-E-T-E. And uh, Ed Pete was one of the, uh, was a big developer at the time in Arlington and uh, did the Bromptons uh, townhouse development and a lot of other high-rise developments. Uh, but we ended up buying that property from, from his family. And it was funny how we got that property under contract because I sent a contract in the mail with a with a check, saying I'm interested in buying your property. Here's a contract and a check, and I surprisingly got a response, and the response was a signed contract in the mail. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of these things you learn trial and error. Uh, Someone told me that if you send a contract in the mail with with a check, uh, you know it'll get someone's attention. It's probably not the safest thing to do, but it got their attention and it was a great deal. You know, we ended up making seventy five, eighty thousand on our first deal, so it was terrific. That's awesome. Not a very not a very attractive house, but a good area. Well, Scott, I what I what I've seen in your career over the last twenty years, right? I think it's been you've been in in real estate now nineteen years. It's just kind of this this reinvention, this theme of reinvention, right? So you were yeah. lease option, 
then you were wholesaling. I saw you doing some wholesales, but quickly went into rehabbing like really nice homes, HDTV kind of quality, popping the top, and then into new construction, right? Mm -hmm. And building luxury new construction in North Arlington. Yeah. And then one day you woke up and said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this anymore, right? Like what happened? Well, we had uh, we had been doing house flipping for about 10 years straight. And as you said, I graduated from doing basic projects like the first one I mentioned to taking off the roofs of houses and adding a second, a second story to eventually getting into infill development where you tear down one house and build one in its place or sometimes tear down one in an oversized lot and build two in its place. Mm. Um, you know, the, the metamorphosis of that is that you know, we started small and then just worked our way up the food chain to eventually becoming not only house renovators and flippers, but also spec spec builders, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, this, the spec building game is, is a lot of fun and that, you know, you, you take something that wasn't there and then 18 months later, it's you have this, you know, luxury house that you're on the market for a million and a half plus. The downside with that, is you're you're really at the mercy of of the market. You know, you could buy a lot, you can get plans put together, you know, get engineering plans put together, put them in front of the county or town to get approved, and you're already at month six or seven before you even put a shovel in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking at a, a ten month build time, and so you're really at month probably fifteen if you're lucky before the house is even done. And what I didn't like about that was what I found out pretty quickly in 2008 when we had multiple new houses going at the same time and 2008 came and all of a sudden that spreadsheet that we had showing the potential profit we could make just went like this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're in the middle of those luxury home builds, you don't stop. You know, you, you don't close the door and walk away from them. So you have to finish them. And luckily we never lost any money on those. Uh, we probably lost money when you factor in our time, mm-hmm. but we never we never lost any money on a from a spreadsheet perspective. But we did a, we did multiple new construction projects in that 2008 to 2010 period, or maybe I'd say 2007 to 2009 period, where we made we made less money than we would on a on a, on a quick flip. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that really got me to thinking on whether or not staying on the path of being a, a spec luxury spec home builder was the path we wanted to be on. Now we we could have we could have ratcheted that back and just simply gone back to flipping houses and just doing those bread and butter, you know, fix up the kitchen and baths and put a coat of paint on and replace the floors and put it back on the market. But in 2010 we were at a unique crossroads in that we had gotten to the point where we had a full-time construction project manager on staff and we had three actually we had four houses on one street that we were doing at one time three were brand new houses and then we had one uh historic renovation mm-hmm. and our project manager gave us notice that he was going to be leaving the company um, as we were wrapping up these four projects the other thing that happened so we we're going to be out of a project manager mm-hmm. we, were, we were either going to we we're going to have to hire a new project manager so that's one of the key things that happened. The second key thing that happened was we found out that we were going to be having our first baby. Mm-hmm. So 
we were at, in the unique position of being able to make a decision right now on whether or not we wanted to hire someone new and keep down the same path we were going on, or if we wanted to, to maybe chart a new path. And the reason why we chose to chart a new path was because we wanted to have a better utilization of our time. We were we were both working a lot. I mean, Lisa was basically uh, picking out all the fixtures and finishes for the house, all the paint colors. I was managing a construction project manager, also basically uh, managing the books and you know the uh, the flow of the projects. And it took a ton of our time. We realized that we probably couldn't have a very good home life if we kept on the same way we we're keeping on. So we decided that we wanted to go into commercial real estate and we started looking into where within commercial real estate we thought we would fit. Um, we liked the retail and restaurant uh, asset class of commercial real estate just because that, that's what we like. Uh, we, we, we both love food. We like going to restaurants. Um, I like retail. It, it excites me. Some of the other asset classes just didn't excite me. I wasn't really excited about office. I'd, I'd worked in my home office for, for at that time, 10 years. So the idea of peddling office space was a little bit foreign to me. Multifamily, you know, I've had residential rentals. We had had duplexes. Um, I didn't think I could leverage my time as well as I could in, in retail and restaurant properties. Reason being, uh, you know, with retail and restaurant properties, they run on a triple net basis. So you can pass off a lot of the maintenance responsibilities to the tenant. And that really appealed to me. Um, that's, that's called a triple net basis where the tenant is basically maintaining the property, but they're also reimbursing you for property tax, insurance, and any, in any common area maintenance on the property. So I liked that a lot. I, I kind of liked that set it and forget it type, mm -hmm. uh, property. Now you can never forget a property, but you can forget it a lot more on retail than you can on multifamily or office. So that, that really appealed to me, that, the fact that I could leverage my time better uh, with that particular asset class. But let me, yeah, but let me ask you, I mean, it, it sounds like you, you're on this residential path, you understand that path, right? And then one day you wake up and, and without, I mean, I almost feel like you would have to know that the other side was better, right? Because it's not always better, right? The grass isn't always greener. So you just woke Stop. up and you said, I'm going to do commercial retail because I just believe that that's better. Or did somebody tell you it was better? Or did you see, like, what made you believe that that was going to be better? And, you know, how did you do your first deal? Because that seems like you probably need a lot more capital than just buying up you know, single family house to fix and flip. Well, you and I'd always laughed about recruiting on how I always wanted to go for the big deals and the large deals in recruiting. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked at the lease size deals in retail and the retail asset class versus the residential class, I realized that if I could sign one lease with a retailer or a restaurant and bring in 10,000 plus a month in rent, versus signing one apartment lease at 800 a month or 1100 a month, I found that a lot more appealing. So I, I really wanted to uh, get to a high net operating income as fast as I could. And I realized that if I want to do that, I need to, I need to find tenants that are going to pay me a lot of money in rent. And it wasn't on the multifamily side. Okay. 
Again, yes, you can get somebody to sign a $10,000 a month lease and that property is vacant for one month, two months, three months, and you're talking about an $8,000 a month note or $5,000 a month. Like, right. So you obviously had saved up the reserves. Did you have the reserves for it? Like, how did you, what gave you the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to buy this building. And if it's vacant for three months or four months, I've got the reserves. So give me a little bit about the psychology or even just like the evolution of that. Well, I was fortunate enough when we first started seeking out commercial buying opportunities, I was fortunate enough that we were still, we still had multiple properties in the pipeline that we were selling on the residential side that wouldn't, they wouldn't all sell off for six to 12 months. So we were still wrapping up multiple projects. So while we were still wrapping up those projects, I started poking around and looking for uh, purchase opportunities in, you know, within the DC market, specifically the Northern uh, Virginia market to purchase. And, and just like I did when I first started out where I was networking on the lease to purchase.com site, I started looking on websites like, like LoopNet and some of the other commercial uh, uh, websites and, and tried to educate myself on the different language of commercial real estate versus residential real estate. And also similar to our journey on the residential side, I was on the residential side, I was very fortunate to have multiple mentors uh, that helped me along the way on the residential side. And I realized the importance of that. So I started kind of keeping my ear to the ground and my eyes open for someone who could help me. And, you know, I, there were multiple people that I, I tried to befriend and ask, and I got shot down, you know, several times or just not no one just got no response at all. But I was fortunate enough one time to be reading the Washington Post and in the commercial section and the generic and the general section of the commercial real estate section, there was an ad that said commercial real estate investor consulting and it had a phone number. Hmm. And so I so I called it and um, it ended up being a, a gentleman named Ron, who, who was also in Arlington, which gave me a comfort level because that's where I live. Uh, but what really gave me a, a comfort level that this guy could could be of assistance to me and that I could trust him was his wife was a prominent residential real estate agent. And when I asked him his wife's name and uh, he told me what her name was, it gave him instant credibility because I knew, I knew of his wife. I knew she was a very reputable agent in Arlington. And so him and I got together and uh, he started uh, giving me advice on commercial real estate. And I started looking around for, for commercial real estate. And the first deal we, we did together was a Walgreens in Arlington. Uh, it, Walgreens ended up being the tenant, but it was an Eckert that was going out of business. And I would go to this Eckert every Sunday morning, get my Washington Post, and uh, it was kind of a routine. One day on the on the front door, there was a just a very eight and a half by eleven sign that said, "We'll be closing on X date." But oh, that's interesting. How often do drugstores close, especially on a prominent corner in North Arlington? Yeah. So. So I made mental note of that. And then I, you know, went home and I did a reverse search to try to figure out who the owner was. And I found it was an owner out of Chicago. So I just picked up the phone that following Monday and called them and asked them if they wanted to sell. And eventually I got to the right person and they said they did want to sell. And I went back to my mentor, Ron, and I go, these guys want to sell. <laughs> what, what, what do I do now? <laughs> and he said, 
so, you know, it was, it was fortunate that I had this mentor because he had a uh, contact who was actually a close friend of his, actually a fraternity brother of his from college who happened to be a Walgreens preferred developer. Mm. And he said, he said, let me, let me put you in, in touch with Dick and, you know, you guys can get together and, and talk about this. So, so we did. Uh, and Dick and I put together a contract, put it in front of this investment firm in, out of Chicago negotiated back and forth and got a contract and you know then dick as the preferred developer said hey scott you know you've done a great job here i'd like to negotiate a buyout here give you a give you a check to you know basically get out of the way (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know that and that's and that's what happened so you know i uh Scott, I remember, I remember it was a six figure check and I remember you being like a little salty about it. You're like, ah, like, because I think the development piece was a pretty, could be a pretty big piece. Right. Um, and so, I mean, you weren't salty, you were happy, but you were also, you felt like you might be leaving things on the table. Right. Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? You just got a six figure (laughs) check. You know? Yeah, you know, you look at things, you look at things, you know, almost a decade later, and you can be a lot calmer about it. But at the time, you know, I wanted to stay in the deal. And, you know, I, I kind of smoothed over a minute ago that he just said he wanted to buy buy me out. Uh, really, what it came down to was, looking back on it now, being honest with myself, I didn't add any further value. My value was bringing the deal to the table uh, that he didn't know about. And working with him to get it under contract. But after that, I, I didn't offer any value. He knew it. I didn't know at the time. I know it now, but he knew I didn't add any value. And so that's why him and his partner said, Scott, you got to go. And I didn't want to go, but you know, looking back on it now, it was nice to make a six figure check really for doing nothing more than picking up my Sunday paper. <laughs> well, you made a phone call. You made I did a make a phone call. call. Yes, and, and 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 I want people to hear that, right? I, I'm hearing some themes as we're kind of going through this a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, so this is the evolution, right? Um, lease options, sandwich lease options, mm-hmm. to renos, right? Wholesales to renos to new construction luxury to wholesale a commercial, you know, drugstore to mm-hmm. then purchasing your first one, right? Right. Yeah, right? purchasing your first one, and um, you know, so far it sounds like everything is going awesome. Like I, I yeah. haven't heard, you know, you even navigated, you know, two thousand and eight being relatively unscathed, right? Two thousand eight, two thousand nine, relatively unscathed, right? Yeah, and I was fortunate on that because you know there were a lot of there were multiple competitors of mine who went out of business in two thousand eight. We we kept things conservative and low leverage. Um, but there were, there were some that, that didn't make it. So, yeah. uh, well, and I remember testing, I remember you telling me, Hey, I'm $10,000 away from lo- losing money on this one property. And I've worked on it for the last like 18 months, 19 months. Yeah. Right. But you were yep. smart enough to just say, I'm ripping the bandaid off and let's just, let's just do it to move on to fight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You got, you, you can't, you don't want to go down with the sinking ship. <laughs> Take the life jacket when you got it, you know, even if, even if it's painful. So, so what is, what does life look like now today? Right. You, you own uh, a handful of commercial properties. There are different types of commercial properties. Kind of walk me through what that portfolio looks like today. 
yeah, so we have a portfolio of, of retail asset uh, rental properties in the Northern Virginia market, specifically the Alexandria market. And then we have uh, some retail properties in the uh, South Carolina market where I now live. And these properties range anywhere from a two tenant building to a, uh, uh, to a shopping center to historic Main Street retail, uh, like you see on King Street mm-hmm. in Old Town Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they're all they're all retail properties uh, with tenants uh, that are uh, restaurants. Some are, are local credit uh, restaurants. Uh, some are national uh, chains um, on the retail side. Some of these uh, retailers are, are national tenants with you know thousand plus locations worldwide, and some of them are. Uh, local credits and, and it's only their own it's, it's their only shop uh, some of them are franchise credit and maybe they have two three even 40 locations mm-hmm. uh, so it, it it varies but they're all retail and, and food use tenants um, we, we do have one property that has uh, an office component but it's a very small portion of, of the building Got uh, it. other than other than that it's all retail driven so is this is this been or may, maybe not? I don't know. Like whenever I talk to you, you seem completely like calm. But has this been one of the most challenging times in your career, going through what we're going through with with COVID? Or you're like, hey, no, this is no big deal. And you know, our most challenging time was X, right? Uh, uh, no, this has been very challenging. Yeah, I mean this this has been extremely challenging. You know, our our food our food use tenants, whether they're whether they're national tenants or or simply local credit tenants with one location, all of them uh, through the months of April through June had trouble paying the rent. Most of them did. Most of them did not pay the rent at all. Um, so you know we had we had a good ninety days where uh, all of our food tenants, uh, with the exception of one who was making partial payments, all of our food tenants, with the exception of one, were not paying rent for for the for the whole quarter essentially. Okay. So and and then we had retailers. Uh, some of them were not were not able to make full payment rents, and were not able to make payment of rents at all. Uh, we did have a handful of businesses that we've now discovered, you know, with the new buzzword uh, essential businesses mm-hmm. that that uh, were were fine the entire time. And those type of tenants are tenants like the cell phone stores or the uh, auto parts stores, those tenants have done just fine, if not better, uh, during the COVID times. Uh, so, but, you know, it's it's been a lot of legal fees, been a lot of, uh, mm. you know, uh, converse. And when I say legal fees, I'm not talking about taking people to court. I'm talking about simply a lot of drafting of rent deferral documentation um, mm. To try to figure out a way with the tenant to pay back the deferred rent for those months of uh, April through June, mm-hmm. um, and then it's also on the on the on the lender side um, because you know I'm you know I'm in a position where uh, you know we are still leveraging properties with, with bank financing where we we're going to the banks and we're trying to match up the deals we made with the tenants to deals that we hopefully want to make with the bank. Can we get the bank to defer payments for those 90 days, or can we can we switch to interest only for the months uh, from April uh, through June? And uh, the banks have been extremely accommodating, whether they're um, local banks 
or whether they're national banks, they've been they've been actually really awesome to work with. So, but it's it's been a juggling act for sure, no no question about it. And you know, I I hope we're out of the woods. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see. I mean, the the rent deferral deals we made uh, were, you know, deals where uh, we had we set a date with the tenant. Uh, just say, like for example, a lot of them started paying back their their rent deferrals uh, as of October first. Some of them uh, who have the wherewithal, some of the national tenants will, will have paid back the full rent deferral amount by the end of the year. Some of them we've given all the way out to the end of 2021 to wow. pay back the uh, amounts. So, um, you know, our goal is for, for to keep tenants in business. Mm-hmm. I don't want tenants to go out of business. I know they don't want to go out of business. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to be a businessman, but at the same time, I have to be empathetic as well. Yeah. So, but the goal uh, in retail real estate is tenant retention. You, you don't want to lose a tenant. It is, it's very expensive to retenant a, a property or a unit. I mean, it gets it gets expensive in a hurry because mm-hmm. uh, some of the some of the concessions that we have to make as landlords for retail and restaurant property are a lot different than multifamily. Uh, or single family rentals. So, you know, not only are we paying uh, brokerage commissions, but we're also doing things such as giving tenant improvement allowances or giving a free rent period. And so, you know, a free rent period could be, you know, our, the last free rent period we gave was, was six months. Wow. So, you know, that's, you know, you have a, you have a lease that you sign for 10 grand, you're giving the tenant 60,000 bucks. And then if you're signing a 10 year lease um, and you, you're, you're talking about, you know, rent rates of 10 to $13,000 a month on a 10 year lease, commissions are paid on that initial base term. So if you have, you know, $100,000 a year lease times 10 years times 6%, you know, you could be paying commissions depending on what that rent rate ends up being of 75 to a hundred thousand bucks. Oh, front. Uh, yeah. Well, you, once the lease is signed and once any contingencies are lifted, like if the tenant happens to have like an alcohol license, uh, contingency or a certificate of occupancy contingency, once those, once those contingencies are lifted, you know, you got to pay that money. So, you know, if you have a, a property where the rents are high, like I'm talking about, like, you know, a hundred thousand plus a year, you could easily spend six figures retenanting that property. So you want to keep the tenants. Okay. Okay. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I know you yeah. want to keep that's a lot of that adds up really fast. Well, yeah. You know, so when when well, even before COVID hit, did you ever experience you know, uh, because now you're dealing with the numbers are a lot larger, right? If somebody if a tenant you know, and doesn't pay you a rent of $2,000 a month, you probably have a, like, you're like, okay, no big deal, right? Yeah. Um, but now you're talking about either a business going out of business or, you know, mm-hmm. somebody not paying you for four months, six months um, at a time. Did you ever have a time pre-COVID where you were like, oh, shoot, Right. Oh yeah. Our very, uh, the very first deal that, that we did once, once we finished that Walgreens deal, the very next deal we did was a property in the Potomac yard area, Alexandria. And it was advertised as a lease back. So 
this was an old company. It was a, a West Coast competitor of Mako called Earlshide Paint and Body. They did mm-hmm. they did very inexpensive paint and body uh, jobs, and they had recently been bought out by an investment firm that specialized in turnarounds. And Earlshide had kind of fallen on hard times. And, and one of the strategies this investment firm had was they were going to look in the 80 uh, store portfolio that Earlshide still had and sell off any real estate owned property that Earl Scheib had and then have Earl Scheib lease back from the purchaser. So this was advertised as a lease back. So I liked this because I was still, we still had, you know, residential things going on. It was a great location. Uh, unbeknownst to me, it was 2010. The market was still depressed. So I was fortunate enough to get a, a very well located property when there weren't a lot of people looking at the time. Mm-hmm. We we signed a uh, letter of intent to buy the property. Earl Scheib's investment firm sent over Earl Scheib's financials. They weren't good. They were they were really bad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this company had this company had very little money, mm-hmm. and so what we ended up negotiating was getting a five month security deposit. Okay. Which wow. is a pretty hefty, it's a pretty hefty security deposit. Mm-hmm. So we got a five month security deposit. We closed the deal. Earl Scheib is now our tenant. And within 18 months, Earl Scheib goes out of business nationwide, closes all AD locations. So <laughs> my, uh, my partner and I on that deal are like, wow, I'm glad we got the five month security deposit. We probably should have got an even bigger one. <laughs> so I am, you know, faced now with having a vacant building, uh, being fortunate enough to have a five-month security deposit to float us while we market this uh, property for lease. Uh, but we burned through pretty much the entire five-month security deposit before we get our first tenant for the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say our first tenant for the building, uh, we luckily found. Uh, Cellular Sales, which is a which is a Verizon reseller, and at the time had about 500 locations, who liked this corner so much that they took half of the building at their expense and they completely changed it from uh, an industrial paint shop to a retail space. And mm-hmm. so we were able to sign that lease, and then we signed a lease with the remaining half of the building with a uh, discount tire tenant uh, that they kept their side of the building industrial. And fortunately uh, we were able to end up with a higher net operating income now with two tenants than we, than we had with, with Earl Shad. But uh, it was, you know, for our first deal as a commercial landlord, that was a, that was a scary venture. You know, you, you know, you buy a a 6,000, actually about a 6,600 square foot building and thinking that you're going to have a nice income stream for a decade from this, 80 plus uh, national retailer, and then one day they just they're just dark. Uh, what did so, you what did like what were the number? What was the note on that on a monthly basis? Like, what was it costing you to be vacant? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, we purchased that property for uh, I believe a million four something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was. You know, it was challenging times, and we were still in the in a recession. Yeah, interesting. I don't remember. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean our interest rate on that on I don't remember our monthly mortgage note, but I do remember our interest rate was was uh, above seven percent. Mm-hmm. And we we put down my partner and I we put down collectively to attract a bank to let us purchase that building uh, above thirty percent, which is pretty which is pretty hefty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that given time, uh, given the fact we were in a recession, it 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 was it was par for the course. We were happy to get the financing. Yeah. So, um, so, so that, that, that was it. Yeah. So that, that's, that's a, oh shoot moment for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's been multiple, there's been multiple, uh, things like that that have happened. I mean, the most recent deal where I've taken my lumps was we have, uh, we have a portfolio of properties on King street in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we actually have, uh, we actually have three properties on one block uh, mm-hmm. on King Street, and we also have another one on a different block. But at the time, we had two properties on this block, and I had been calling this owner next door to one of our properties every year for about five years, asking if they wanted to sell. Mm-hmm. They finally said they want to sell, and we purchased the building vacant. <clears throat> it was a, a restaurant that was closing shop after about 40 years. Um, I had all the confidence in the world that I knew my numbers on what the rent should be. And after we purchased it, started marketing the property for lease at the numbers that I thought they should be at based on the other properties that we have on that street and the market simply changed. Mm-hmm. So the, the rent rates that I thought I could get were now no longer the rent rates. And so we spent... It took over a year and a half to fill that property. Yeah. It took okay. a year and a half to fill the property. <laughs> okay. That's what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> that, is, that is wild. Okay. Yeah. So you can, you know, we used, we used some of our skills as house flippers uh, to really leverage our way into the commercial retail world and that we were willing to buy properties that were, that were either vacant or partially vacant mm-hmm. and reposi- reposition them uh, and fill them with new tenants. And then once they were filled with new tenants, we were able to get a return in that given area that was much higher than, than what you would see in that given market. So maybe the, maybe the average return is, is 6% annually. And then once we stabilize the property, we're three or four points above that. Mm-hmm. And, and that worked out well until we got to this specific property. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where the market was just different. There, the, the vacancy rate had climbed on King street mm-hmm. and landlords were either having, having to lower their rents, or sit on properties. Mm-hmm. So I found myself kind of chasing the market and you know, what I thought was a, uh, a rent rate uh, in the mid forties really ended up being a rent rate in the mid thirties when it was all said and done. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, in order to do that, you either need the reserves or you got to tap into other cash from other places. You got to refinance and take cash out to like flow. Yeah. That, right. So yep. there's always a lot of money management involved in this. Yeah, well, there's a lot of money management. One of the mistakes I made in that deal that I'll never do again, and the reason why I made the mistake was I had so much I had had so much good fortune on retenanting these vacant properties very quickly. Uh, sometimes 
sometimes I would have a letter of intent or a, uh, a lease out for signature before we even closed on the property. Mm. But, in, but, but in this case, that, that didn't happen. Mm. Uh, the big mistake I made was not doing an interest-only loan. So I paid int- principal and interest payments on this property fully vacant for 12 months before I called up my lender. I said, hey, we got to go to interest only until I until I fill this property. Mm-hmm. And so the, the lender was gracious enough to give us an interest only period uh, for that next year. And that really uh, brought down our holding expenses quite a bit. Okay. Um, so I've heard I've heard a theme, another theme here that uh, I think a lot of people can the benefit from. It, it really sounds like what you've been able to do is go into a pocket in an area, wh- whether it's residential or commercial, mm-hmm. get one asset and then start buying other assets all around it by leveraging the fact that you already have an asset on the street or you're yeah. already, you know, you're familiar with it because so, so that's it. I don't think enough people do that, right? They kind of scatter themselves all over the place. Um, yeah. It's, and I don't know. I don't know why they don't do that because it's it, the calls, the calls and the contacts to potential sellers are so easy when you have a foot in the door already. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a if you have a property in a given area, even if you only have one, you can call you can call a, a an owner of a property and say, "Hey, look, I I own I own a property at on the seven hundred block of King Street. I notice you have a property on the six hundred block. You know, do you have any interest in selling?" You know, usually that that will give you instant credibility. Yeah, and that's it. Are you are, were you primarily calling to get these deals, or were you sending letters and calling, or were you just, you know, working through brokers? I mean, obviously, maybe a combination of all of them. But what's been, what do you find is is worked best for you? It's been a combination of all of them. I, I have had some success on on identifying that um, you can have you can you can get some hits on owner occupied property on you know business owners who own the real estate and i've i've purchased multiple properties from from business owners that own the real estate and i've and i've done deals directly uh with those with those owners Uh, you know one of the one of the differences in commercial real estate and i don't want to speak for all commercial real estate but one of the differences in retail versus uh being an investor of single family homes is, you know, retail is a, is a pretty broker driven uh, environment. And so, uh, you know, the common theme, at least it was for me uh, when I was a residential investor was you're always going to get the best deals when they're not in the market. I don't, I don't think that's the case in, uh, in the commercial retail world. Mm. I, I've, I've purchased some very good deals that are that were directly on LoopNet or CoStar. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, and if you think about it, you know, these these brokers, these retail brokers, uh, they specialize in getting to know these owners and they specialize in getting to owner, getting to know owners in that given market. And some of them specialize in getting to know owners of specific types of properties. Mm-hmm. I get two or three phone calls a week from brokers who specialize in nothing more than marketing uh, retail auto parts stores. So they know the ins and outs of O'Reilly's, Advance Auto, AutoZone, Napa, and they mm-hmm. can they can they can crank off any stat you want about auto repair uh, uh, you know auto repair parts stores. So uh, you know 
you know, getting to know brokers is, is a good thing. You can get a lot of uh, knowledge from them and they could be a, be a great service to you as well. If, if somebody wanted to take knowing what you know now, right? Because sometimes it's good that you don't know some of these things, right? You just, yeah. right? But knowing what you know now, if somebody wants to make that transition from res, residential, and I guess we'll speak to retail specifically because that's what you do, retail commercial, right? What are some steps that somebody could do? I think maybe some some psychological bad baggage that I've seen agents have, uh, I should say investors have on the retail, on the residential side, is that they say to me, hey, I'll invest when I have the money. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't need the money, right? right. You don't need the money, you just need to find the deal. You could always find the money, you could always partner with somebody, right? Right. It, what would you say is, is if somebody wanted to make that leap right into the into the commercial side, but they didn't have maybe the reserves required to do it on their own or the money are, are partnerships the same way like they are in residential or what advice would you just give somebody that wants to make that that transition right into that side of the business? Yeah, the partnerships. I do think the partnerships are different on uh, on the on the commercial side versus the residential side. If you're going to have a true partner. They're they're not simply going to want to be a, a a private lender or a hard money lender. They're going to want a piece of the deal too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the you know some of the deals that we made, you know, I would put down, you know, maybe a fourth or a fifth of the money, and the partner would put down the rest, and we would split up the equity, and uh, we would agree upon a you know a return. Uh, you know, one of the first deals I did, I guaranteed the investor a ten percent return. And I gave him a uh, a piece of the equity, and and I took a piece of the equity, mm-hmm. and that was able, you know, that we were able to get the deal done that way. And he's still my partner to this day. We've since done a cash out refi, so neither one of us have any actual of our own money in in the property anymore. And he's just getting an infinite return now. Yeah, that's um, awesome. So you don't you don't really need a lot of money uh, to get in this. I will say that it would it's it's probably helpful to have a partner on the on the first deal, simply from a credibility standpoint, when, when I, we did that first deal purchasing that Earl Shad paint and body shop, the brokers were uh, out of a big firm out of California and uh, they must've looked at my website and they're like, you know, who is this guy? This guy's got a bunch of, bunch of single family houses on his website and, you know, picture of his wife and dog. And, you know, <laughs> who is this guy? So, I mean, so Lisa and I wrote a, uh, along with our letter of intent, wrote, you know, a very detailed cover letter outlining our background, um, the number of deals that we had done on the single family side. We were upfront that this was our first mm-hmm. commercial uh, cash flow investment that we w- wanted to purchase and that our desire was to build a portfolio of commercial rental properties. We also outlined, you know, the amount of private money that we had borrowed and uh, just money in general that we had borrowed, uh, you know, over that 10 year period as, as single home flippers. And the fact that we had never defaulted on any loans and mm-hmm. have always been in, in excellent standing with all our lenders. So, you know, we submitted that through our broker along with the letter of intent and the broker represents us looked at this letter and was like, wow, this is a, an impressive letter and it worked. And I, if we wouldn't have had the letter, we. It, the chances of getting that deal, I think, would have been low just because we didn't have the experience or the credibility. Yeah, you had to build 
business confidence in their mind. Like you we did business confidence, right? Yeah. You might not have known that asset class, but you understood how to make money, right? Yeah. How to run a business. So. Yeah, and it it worked. You know, we you know again, I was introduced to that specific broker who was marketing that property. Actually, he was not the listing agent. He just knew that it was going to be for sale. Uh, and he was an, an older broker in the Alexander market. He knew my mentor and mm-hmm. called my mentor up and was talking about this property. And Ron said, hey, wh- why, don't I, why don't I introduce you to Scott? This might be something he wants to purchase. Mm-hmm. And so that that's how I got my foot in the door on my first purchase. And once I consummated that deal and we bought it, the very next deal uh, was another uh, deal that he had his ear to the ground that he knew this property would be coming up for sale. He was representing the owner of the building at this time, who happened to be uh, an owner-occupant. He owned he owned the Popeyes franchise uh, that was on uh, King Street. And uh, Chuck, the broker, said, "Hey, Scott, if, if you want to take a crack at this deal, take a crack at it." He goes, "Just know that I'm going to be calling, you know, other uh, investors as well. So if you want it." move fast. And so I, I moved fast and, and I got it. And I was fortunate because there was another, it was another prominent investment family that owned, uh, I shouldn't say another, I, I wasn't a prominent investment family. Oh man. But there was a prominent investment family on that street. And the, the story goes, according to Chuck, the broker, that he had called and left them a message. And the guy happened to be out of town. Yeah. And we made the offer, got the guy to sign the contract before the other group back, got back in town. And so we moved fast and we were lucky. But, you know, we got that deal because not only did we move quickly, but because we proved ourselves with that broker that we could get the deal done. Yeah. Yeah, another theme I've heard is uh, nobody succeeds alone, right? It's been a series of relationships and fostering those relationships over time, building goodwill, building good business partners. Um, I know that you had a private lender that you knew for many years, right? That funded a lot of deals for you guys through the, you know, and, um, and so it, you know, it sounds like what you've, what you and Lisa have been able to do is uh, surround yourself with good people, develop lasting, long-term relationships with those people. They build trust, you know, they they trust you event, you know, over time, and yeah. that trust then becomes your rep- reputation in the marketplace. And so people, right. say, hey, let's let's call Scott and Lisa. They could be a good fit for this, right? They're good people. They fulfill on their commitments. They do what they say they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Which I would imagine in your world is very similar to my world. It's a small world, so the news gets around really fast when you don't do the right thing or you default on something, or you know. Um, yeah, reputations are you know are, are paramount in in your world and in mine. And and the the industries, although they seem big, are, are pretty small. And if small. you uh, if you make a uh, ethical misstep, it gets out pretty quick. So um, yeah, we've always been. We've always valued our integrity and credibility, and I think it's it's proved as well. Let's let's kind of end with this. One thing that you talked about um, when you and I spoke earlier, and I, it it really resonated with me, was um, this concept of 
And I remember Mark Beckett, my business partner, called me after we all talked that one day and he said, I love Scott. Scott is my hero, right? Because you had said something that really, like, really like, rang true in his heart. You know, and it, it had to do with making sure that you weren't trading um, your time, right? Working and spending your time working, right? You really, you wanted to recapture time. And one of the reasons why you'd got in the commercial was to recapture your time for your family, Right. And um, can you talk a little bit about that, your philosophy around that, your thought process around that? Yeah, well, flipping houses is a lot of fun. I mean, it's a huge adrenaline rush. You know, it's fun seeing a property go from, you know, uh, a dog to a diamond. Mm -hmm. It's it's a lot of fun. But it's also at the end of the day, it, it is investing, but it's more like a typical job. You're really only as good as your last deal. And I realized that if I could build up a, a portfolio that generated cash flow, where if I didn't want to flip houses anymore, I didn't have to, that that was the route I wanted to go and that that would earn my time back. Um, for, for people who don't have a rental portfolio and haven't experienced, you know, having that passive income come in month after month, it could be a little bit foreign, but it, it is possible and it really can give you a life where you're free to do with your time as you wish. And that's, that was always my goal is to be in total control of my time. Uh, The money's nice, but I always wanted the freedom of time to be able to say, Hey, if I want to go to the sauna at two o'clock today, I'm doing it. Or if I want to work out at 10 in the morning while everyone else is getting their second cup of coffee at the water cooler, I want to do it. And so it's always been paramount to me to try to leverage my time where I can really do what I want to do. Cause I mean, look, I, I have a, an eight year old and a four year old and I'm in this window right now where they're only going to be young for so long. So I would rather spend as much time as I can with them and Lisa where when I'm 55 or 60 years old and they're in their early twenties, I don't look back and go, man, I wish I wouldn't have worked so much. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm not going to have that regret just because I've, I've structured my life in a way where I can drive them to school every morning, which I do. And uh, when they come home at, at four o'clock, I can, I can spend time with them as well. And so I feel very fortunate that I've been able to unlock uh, that key to be able to get my time back. And when I developed that rental portfolio and left house flipping, I, I got my time back. Yeah, that's it's interesting. One of the I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but I definitely I thought about it afterwards. Um, was you know when you're fixing and flipping houses or you're selling houses, it is an adrenaline rush, and if you're not careful, it's an ego rush, right? Yeah, meaning people see you out there as massively successful buying, fixing, flipping houses or selling houses, but it's all earned income, right? So you're only good as the last flip. You're only as good as the last sale. And, and the issue becomes you could fall into this trap of being addicted to that and not, and then wake up and not realize, wow, really what I, I should have been building the whole time was an income stream to pay me back over time so I can recapture back time. Right. I find there's a lot of people that try to do that on, on residential 
real estate. But it almost seems like residential, it doesn't really occur in, until those assets are paid off, right? Or until you have massive, like very large multifamily properties. Like you would need, just because of our rent to purchase ratios in this area, this is really more yeah. of like an almost like an appreciation kind of market versus a cash flow market. Um, and even in cash flow markets, it seems like because it's not triple net lease, a lot of that, the, your operating cost goes into servicing the asset, the physical asset itself. And then it appears to me that really you're delaying that income stream until you've paid off that asset, right? Right. At least that's what I've experienced on the residential side, right? No, that, that's very true. I mean, yeah, especially in a market like Northern Virginia, it's one of the, when we were analyzing how we could go into owning rental property that would give us the passive income we wanted, knowing, uh, looking at the small portfolio we had at the time of single family homes, in Northern Virginia, the cash flow was very small just because even even though we were buying these properties, you know, at 70 to 80 cents in the dollar, they, they still were just, you know, you're lucky if you eke out a couple hundred bucks a month after paying the, the high property taxes and the insurance and like you said, the upkeep. So I realized I wasn't going to be owning single family homes in the Northern Virginia market and, and retiring and riding off into the sunset at, at any at any time in the near future. So that that's again, why I chose to go into commercial uh, just because the, the properties uh, had a clear path of, of throwing off cash flow that would be able to help us live the lifestyle we wanted to lead. That first, let's just go back to that first property, that first ask. I'm just curious more than anything. You don't have to share sure. like yeah. it inspire me or some other people out there. Right. So that first asset that you purchased, right. Um, in I guess Potomac Yard. Um, yeah. What was the what was the cash flow on that? What did you know when you purchased it? It was your first one. Um, what was? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the cash flow was on that asset? I don't remember what the cash flow was then, but I can tell you now our portion of the cash flow because we do have a partner on the deal. It, net cash flow is about fifty five hundred a month net. Yeah. Wow. So if. It, that's amazing, right? Fifty five hundred net on that one yeah. asset. It's really eleven thousand, right? Um, yeah. Total. Yeah. Unbelievable, yeah. right? And I yeah. know that that asset is in a very well located area. Now that you you're like everything built up around me. <laughs> yeah, and the and the beauty of uh, the beauty of uh, these cash flow assets is most of these commercial loans run on five-year notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get seven to 10-year notes um, sometimes, but most of them are, is, most of it is five-year money. So you get a five-year loan with a bank and then you need to refinance it for five years. And the amortization table on those is typically either 20 to 25 years. So you, after five years, you've paid back a good chunk of change. So mm-hmm. after five years, if the market's still healthy, you can either do a, a small cash out refi and pull out some some of the equity that you've built up over those five years, or you simply refinance at that lower principal rate and your cash flow should be even better uh, depending on market rates at that time. So you, you give yourself a raise every five years as long as the market's still healthy and, and rates are still low. 
One thing I am concerned about, I don't know if you're concerned about this, and this is me being concerned. I don't even have an asset like this, right? Actually, that's not true. I've got one small multifamily, right? Um, which I had a 10 year, I paid extra to have it locked for 10 years. And then, you know, that's yeah. longer in effect. Um, but I, I'm concerned about where interest rates might be four years, five years from now with we've seen record low interest rates, right? And so, yeah. you know, I, I'm i like, is that a bomb? Is that a ticking bomb for commercial, for anybody in multi? Um, you know, could rates be at six, 7%? And, and with that, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you've given that some thought at all, but it's just something that's crossed my mind. You know, what happens? Yeah. About- yeah. I mean, it's a good point. I mean, the, luckily, most lenders protect their borrowers on, on only giving, uh, on only agreeing to a certain loan to value. So, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find any lenders that agree to go above about a 75% loan to value. So you're always going to have that 25% equity built in. Some lenders aren't even going to let you go to 75%. But yeah, I mean, the, the interest rates are, are, are certainly of concern. Um, but if, well, if you're over leveraged and then you combine a spike in interest rates, that could be a problem for sure. Yeah, I think that's the key. Well, the other thing I've noticed, though, it sounds like on the commercial side, I mean, on the residential side, we're seeing it now, too. But it really yeah. sounds like you know, they, they don't want to take back those assets. They want to work with somebody that they've worked with and, and try to figure it out, work it out with you, right? Mm-hmm. They know that an asset, if the person is making, it sounds like if the person's making a good effort, they're they're communicating with the bank, that, that they're going to want to work it out with you instead of taking yeah. that asset back. Yeah, that's true. To me, so... Yeah, I found uh, during this time, I found lenders to be a very accommodating because contrary you know, 2008 was a real estate crash because we had a liquidity problem, both on the residential side and the commercial side. You know, it was it was a liquidity problem. This doesn't have anything to do with liquidity. This is a this is a, a pandemic, the virus. So it, it's a totally different animal. And uh, I don't think it's I don't think it would uh, be fair for anyone to compare uh, the 2008 uh, real estate bust to this because they're not they're not really comparable. Yeah, um, there, you know, a lot of experts have said, at least on the retail side, that what the pandemic has done is it's been an accelerator. So retailers that were already on the brink of uh, bankruptcy or being rendered extinct when this pandemic happened, the, the foot was on the gas, and you saw companies. Uh, like J.C. Penney's and Ruby Tuesdays and some of these other uh, and Applebee's and some of these other companies that were already having problems years before the pandemic, yeah. it just threw it just threw gas on the fire. Uh, yeah. So, and you know it's unfortunate, but um, I think that the pandemic, what the pandemic is going to do um, across the board, you know, in, in all industries, but speaking for real estate and specifically for retail. Is it's gonna it's gonna cause a, a tremendous amount of, of innovation, um, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing I'm seeing it just on a small level with 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 our tenants, especially the food tenants, as they scramble uh, mentally to try to figure out how to still stay relevant and, and doing just you know innovative things with with takeout and with uh, to go drink orders uh, and that sort of thing. I know some of that's been pushed back now, you know, as far as being able to have alcohol to go, but even still, I, I've 
we've purchased uh, on multiple occasions uh, from restaurants in our area here in Charleston. We've purchased uh, our favorite like margarita mix from our Mexican restaurant and they've bottled this stuff and they sell it now and you come home and you throw a couple of shots of Patron in it and it feels like you're in their restaurant. <laughs> and it's, ge- it's genius. It's genius. I mean, it's so smart. <laughs> and it is, and it is brilliant to see. Well, it's also interesting to see which industries, uh, like thrive during this time. Like I remember when the pandemic hit, I went to go get my bike, um, tuned up my mountain bike yep. tuned up and the guy's like man we're like two weeks behind we don't have any bikes all of our bikes sold out and i'm like really they're like everybody went in bought bikes and everybody brought their bikes in for service and i was like wow, yeah the interest is so interesting right it's it's amazing yeah i mean some of these some industries have just exploded i mean you take like the the home gym uh business uh you, you look at some of these websites like Rogue, you know, that sells a lot of uh, squat racks and dumbbells and and CrossFit equipment uh, online. Yeah. Yeah. You go on, you go on their website. Everything, almost everything, sold out. I mean, same with Dicks and same with Target. I've been I've been searching for forty pound dumbbells for three or four months now. <laughs> <laughs> well, here here's the other one. I bought one of these. Like, I needed a, a better camera at one point, right, for nice. recording videos and. It took months. They're just yeah. completely sold out. So yeah. you, know, you start thinking about kind of like what would happen if in a SWOT analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody said what would happen if the, there's a pandemic and, you know, everybody needed to communicate like this and, you know, do videos. But right. start really start thinking about these things, right? Which industries are going to benefit? Which are going to close up? How are gonna pe- how people going to pivot? How are we going to pivot as real estate investors, as agents? Um mm-hmm. You know, and so um, whenever there is a crisis like that, there's opportunity. And so we, um, so sure. we, you know, here we are, you know, this, I think that this is also in my world, expedite, like expedited the conversation among real estate agents about the importance of uh, a building um, a cash flow side to their business. One that, yeah. you know, pays them every month regardless of what, and we've been right. Like the agent business has benefited. Like it really, like everybody's been buying and selling houses, but we also, we get the opportunity to look at, you know, other industries and say, what would happen if that just dried up? What do we need to do today to start making sure that we're putting in other revenue streams to, Mm -hmm. um, to protect the downside. Right. So, so Scott, thank you. Hey man. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No, I, I appreciate this. I've I've learned a lot. I know a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this. And, uh, you know, if you enjoy if you enjoy this podcast or if you're watching it on YouTube, leave a like. You know, we want to hear from you. We hope that this, you know, these stories provide you value. And I'm it, Scott, it's my honor to have you on here. It, you're my friend. You're my inspiration. Please tell Lisa and the family I say hello. And I can't believe you got your kids are all, they're getting all grown up, right? I know. I got one. I got one right here. She she wants me to read something to her. Hi. <laughs> She's got something for me to read. It's a Halloween thing. Awesome. <laughs> but it it was my it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Thanks, brother. Take care. Enjoy your day. All right. Take care, Rob. See you. Bye-bye.